Good morning. My name is Sarah Basard, and my pronouns are she, her, and hers. I'm a member of your Board of Trustees, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to worship at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Columbia. As we begin, we honor the Piscataway people and their ancestors. It is upon their land that we reside. We are served by the Reverend Paige Getty, minister, as well as a talented and dedicated team of religious educators, musicians, and other professional staff. Much appreciation goes out to the many lay leaders and volunteers whose incredible efforts and dedication help to keep us connected. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, whoever you love, and whatever your faith tradition, you are welcome here. We particularly welcome any guests joining worship this morning. We encourage you to fill out the visitors form in the lobby or online and connect with others in the virtual or in-person social hour after the service so that we may meet and welcome you. Finally, for those attending in our sanctuary at the Owen Brown Interfaith Center this morning, please take a moment to silence your cell phones or electronic devices. There are many announcements this morning. All are invited to attend today's 5 p.m. Climate Forum. Phil Webster will discuss the UU Climate Agenda for the 2023 session of the Maryland General Assembly. Come and learn what legislation will be proposed and how you can advocate for climate change legislation. Find the Zoom link on UUCC's website calendar. Stop by the green table in Sanctuary B after the service to make a donation to our Nourishing Fence Garden fence, not fence, $800 of $3,600 has been raised so far. One World Coffee House invites you to hear multi-instrumentalist Matt Nakoa this Saturday, January 21st at 7 p.m. right here in Sanctuary C. Between his piano chops, charismatic stage presence, and heartfelt originals on guitar, prepare to be amazed. $25 tickets can be purchased at the door or in advance on UUCC's website. Are you a newcomer that's looking to get more connected with others? Are you interested in learning more about UUCC and Unitarian Universalism? Join staff member Sarah Davidson and other staff and congregants for a six-week drop-in newcomer class series beginning next Sunday after service. Next Sunday, we'll explore what spiritual community is and means to us. Living our faith tradition and moving toward beloved community, what are we called to do and be as UUCC? This is a question the Board of Trustees is working to answer with the support of Reverend Page, Experienced Unitarian Universalist Congregational Guide, Laura Park of Unity Consulting, and you, it's a team effort. Together, we'll define our community's values, mission, and ends for the next several years. In other words, the detailed plans that reflect who we are and who we want to become as a congregation. UU congregations are self-governing. Your voice is essential. Facilitated conversations will take place between February 11th and March 4th. Stay tuned for more information, and please do sign up to contribute your perspective. Thank you. Hush, hush, 
Good morning, UUCC, guests, all of those who are with us virtually this morning, welcome. My name is Paige Getty. I use she, her pronouns, and it is my great privilege to serve as minister of this congregation and such a joy to be worshiping with you this morning. If you would like to follow along in an order of service on your own mobile device, please use the QR code that's going to appear on the screen here. There's probably a link in the Zoom chat as well. For those of you here in the sanctuary, if you need a hearing assistance device, please see the tech team in the booth at the back of the sanctuary. You're just waving at me, not telling me I'm doing something wrong, right? Okay. <laughs> I'm getting signaled from the tech booth. They just want you to know they're back there and would welcome you to come visit. If you are a guest today, as Sarah encouraged, please complete that visitor form so that we can stay in touch throughout the week. We have them at the visitor table in the lobby, and you also can complete the form online. And as is our custom, we will honor community members' personal joys and sorrows during the service today. So if you have something you would like us to share, please put it in the book at the back of the room or send it to joysandsorrows at uucolumbia.net. This morning's worship service is an all-ages service. That means there's no separate children's programming. So you are welcome and encouraged to stay here in worship for the entire time together this morning. Today, we honor the legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and many other leaders of the United States Civil Rights Movement. We honor their legacy. We honor the ongoing effort to shape a congregation and a community and a nation and a world in which every human being is truly beloved and truly free. This particular worship service is an affirmation that we are called to be agents of love and justice and to build a world where everyone is cherished for who they are. Doing that requires us, any of us who has privilege, to use our voices, our courage, and our resources to dismantle oppression in all its forms. The script that we're going to be sharing today, it's a four-part story of a decade-long civil rights movement, is one of the many treasures published on the Unitarian Universalist Association's worship web. As you'll hear later, it's not an entirely comfortable story, and it's not meant to be. You'll hear some words and see some images today that are decidedly discomforting. And you're likely to hear and see language that we no longer use because we know how harmful it is. But in the context of today's message and of this history, some of that is necessary to hear and to see. One particular note about content is that some of the images 
especially later in the service in part three of the story, show images of violence that I want you to be aware of. So take note and take care of your own needs in consideration of potentially upsetting vis visual imagery. Finally, a huge word of thanks to all of those who have contributed or are participating today. The choir and Michael, of course, and all of the staff, the hospitality team, the tech team, who, as you can see, is doing a really heavy lift today, and also all the readers who are going to bring this story to life. Jen and Hallie and Valerie and Zoe and Wayne and Ed and Brian and Steve. Thank you all. And finally, special thanks to Amelia Sorensen, who who's up here on the uh, chancel with me, who's a new worship associate and is serving in that role this morning and also helped in advance as we recruited and prepared the participants today. And finally, happy anniversary, Valerie. Valerie Shu has been our executive director for one year. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you all. Let's now join in taking a steadying, grounding breath as we bring ourselves in mind, in body, in spirit, fully into worship. Will you now please rise in body or in spirit as we join our voices, not yet in singing, but in speaking the words of our congregational covenant as we remind ourselves of the promises that we make as a religious community. Strengthened by our common humanity and inspired by our seven principles, we promise to be a safe and welcoming community, to nurture each other's hearts and spirits, to delight in the beauty of our diversity, to struggle together on our spiritual journeys, and to challenge each other to live our values. Thus, we pledge our time and vigor to the continuing celebration of spirit, of the world, and of humankind. And before you take your seats, will you turn and greet one another and welcome each other into this space? Oh, my Hello, Kristen. Hello, Jim. Good morning. Hello, Evelyn. Good morning, everyone. Hello, Dan. Hey, Lori. Albert. Sylvia. Good to see you. Hello, Miss Ann. Hey, Gail. Good morning. Hello. I don't see. There's Sarah. And Tom. This is a piece by Rebecca Savage from The Promise and the Practice. We light our flaming chalice as a beloved people, united in love and thirsting for restorative justice. May it melt away the tethers that uphold whiteness in our midst. May it spark in us a spirit of humility. May it ignite us, 
May it ignite in us radical love that transforms our energy into purposeful action. This is a chalice of audacious hope. This chalice shines a light on our shared past, signaling our intention to listen deeply, reflect wisely, and move boldly towards our highest ideals. Please rise in body or in spirit to sing with us hymn number 95, There Is More Love Somewhere. privilege to present this service today, written by Reverend Clyde Grubbs and Mary Jane Holden. You're about to hear the story of the Civil Rights Movement, a story that needs to be told over and over so that we remember its people and its principles. But it's not a comfortable story, nor should it be. In fact, I wish you discomfort. As the story and its pictures unfold, I wish you anger and unrest. I wish you holy agitation. I wish for all of us to leave this sanctuary at the end of the hour with fresh honor and appreciation for the mighty struggle that took place in our country in the 1960s and for the ways that the struggle continues today. In order to understand the power and meaning of the life of Martin Luther King Jr. We have to go back in history and explain who Jim Crow was. 
Jim Crow was a character in the minstrel shows that white Americans flocked to in the middle of the 19th century. The shows were full of music and dancing clowns and skits. Jim Crow was a black-faced actor, and the comedy was to depict African Americans as stupid and people to be made fun of. For many white Americans, Jim Crow defined what real African Americans were supposed to be like. So in wake of the Civil War and Reconstruction, when the white power structure of the Southern states tried to find a way to continue the oppression of now free African Americans and instituted a group of laws putting African Americans in second class status, they named those laws after the clown character Jim Crow. Jim Crow laws kept black people in separate schools and in menial jobs. They effectively denied the African-American people the right to vote by requiring that they take a test on the U.S. Constitution, which was waived for white people. The examiners always found that the African-Americans failed the test. There was also a tax on voting in some jurisdictions, which kept poor voters, which African-Americans most often were, off the voter list. One of the most humiliating Jim Crow laws was the racial segregation of public transportation. White folks rode in the front of the bus and black folks rode in the back. There were little signs along the bus aisle that indicated white or black. These signs could be flipped and African-Americans told to stand if the white section filled up. African-American people struggled against Jim Crow laws since their inception, but in 1954, the Supreme Court made a landmark decision. In Brown versus the Board of Education, the court made it clear that laws setting up separate schools were unconstitutional. Separate schools were inherently unequal and therefore violated the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. It was clear that Brown versus Board of Education meant an end to all forms of racial segregation in public facilities, but local Jim Crow laws would need to be overcome one by one. Good morning, everyone. For our annual service in recognition of Martin Luther King Day, your music ministry has selected a variety of spirituals, protest songs, and anthems to accompany the civil rights worship script that's provided by the UUA. And since we'll be singing traditional African-American spirituals this morning, I invite and remind you to please consider dropping your donations in the special separate reparations offering plate in the rear of the sanctuary or you can give online by selecting music reparations in the drop-down giving page menu on Realm. As always, we appreciate any generous financial acknowledgement when we experience the privilege to both sing and hear examples of the beautiful and moving spirituals tradition and services here. In addition to There Is More Love Somewhere and Lift Every Voice and Sing, the choir will lead us in the song We Shall Not Be Moved, a tune with spiritual origins that morphed into a labor movement protest song in the 1930s and later co-opted by the civil rights movement in the 1960s. The morning's keyboard selections are spiritual arrangements written by two well-known black classical composers, Samuel Coleridge Taylor, who wrote a number of beautiful and affecting piano arrangements in a suite titled 24 Negro Melodies, which I offer Deep River this morning. And the wonderful American pianist and composer Margaret Bonds, was the first black woman to solo with the renowned symphony orchestra, the Chicago Symphony, despite racial discrimination. 
She conceived a big set of three symphonically conceived piano pieces in her 1967 spiritual suite, of which Troubled Water remains the most well-known of the set. I'll offer an excerpt of this longer piece. For the introit this morning, you heard the choir sing the refrain of a familiar arrangement of the spiritual hush. You may not be aware that in the 1800s, slaves often stole away to places where they could sing and worship that were referred to as hush harbors thickly forested areas where they could remain private and undetected by their owners. Here they would create their own sacred spaces and rituals which combined modern Christianity with their own African and Caribbean traditions. Slaves also utilized hush harbors as meeting spots where they hatched plans for freedom. So it was probably not unusual for hush to be a code for when a meeting might take place. During slavery, direct expressions of protest were, of course, dangerous. So in singing, slaves often went through considerable lengths to disguise the true meaning of their lyrics. The Chalice Choir Anthem this morning is one such example of this. In I Got a Robe, there was an overt protest about basic necessities like shoes and clothing that were often rare in slave quarters. The song boldly proclaims, all God's children got shoes and robes and harps and crowns that they will eventually have in heaven. But in the wonderful line, everybody talking about heaven ain't going there, the slaves who refer to themselves in the spiritual as all God's children emphasize the hypocrisy of the slave owner who claims to be a Christian by attending church every morning, talking about Jesus in heaven, but then returning to the plantation to run a very unheavenly and often immoral enterprise. In subtle, somewhat veiled language here, the slave turns the tables on his oppressor and reverses the power hierarchy. As always, Lori Coultry and I will post informative articles and links in the wonderful database of spirituals we sing here that she created, and you can find that on the music page of the congregational website. I'd also like to thank Laura Cox and Karen Hamming for sharing and offering the solo in this morning's short anthem.
Helena up to drop our stones into the water this morning? Thank you. The practice of sharing our joys and sorrows is a custom in our congregation where one can publicly and openly share a significant, meaningful event that has deeply touched their life. As I read the joys and sorrows, we will listen deeply and lovingly. We are made mindful of the sacredness of the ritual when we cast a stone into the bowl of communal water. The ripples it forms symbolize how our lives touch one another. During the music meditation that follows, those of you who are in the sanctuary are welcome to come up and drop a stone silently. Helena, let's drop one more stone there in the water to represent all those things that you are holding on your heart, in your mind, that may not have words right now. Thank you, Helena. Thank you, Amelia. Will you join me for a few moments of reflection and prayer? And then if you'd like to come forward and honor your own joys and sorrows in silence, you may do that by coming to the table and placing a pebble in the water during the music meditation. Holy Spirit of love, of life, of courage, of learning, may we know this love, this spirit, this courage, and this learning in our own lives. We celebrate with joy these memories of special meetings. We celebrate and hope for ongoing healing. We celebrate the progress our children are making in their lives. And we're grateful for this community, this community that lets us make mistakes and grow and learn that we might bring love and justice in our lives into this world. Let's share just a moment of stillness that we might know our own prayers within. Amen. Blessed be.
Rosa Parks. Not really. It began long before then, in a hundred different places, in a hundred different ways. It began in Africa. It began when the first slaves were brought to America. It began with the proclamation, with the Civil War, and Reconstruction with all those broken promises. But for the public person we remember today, 
for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the world he changed, you could say it began with Rosa Parks. December 1st, 1955, Montgomery, Alabama, bus number 2857. Rosa Parks, 42 years old, was sitting in the front row of the black only bus seats. A bus driver named Jimmy Blake told this little slip of a woman to get up out of her seat so a white man could sit down. And Rosa Parks said, no, no, I will not. I am cold and I'm tired and I got here first. I'm sitting. While she waited, Jimmy Blake went to call the police. She got arrested and hauled away. Ms. Parks wasn't the first to protest bus segregation. Irene Morgan had done the same thing nine years before, and Sarah Keyes had done it just a few months earlier. The U.S. Supreme Court had already said she didn't have to move. She had rights. But this time, somebody noticed. In fact, everybody noticed. That's how the Birmingham bus boycott began and how Martin Luther King Jr. found her. There's no denying it. Rosa Parks was making a point and she knew it. She was secretary of the Montgomery chapter of the NAACP. When she said no to Jimmy Blake, she was already a worker for civil rights and racial equality. But still, this was the moment. She was tired of giving in and she wasn't going to do it anymore. And she suffered for it. She lost her job as a seamstress in a local department store, but she started a movement. E.D. Nixon, president of the local NAACP, wanted Rosa Parks' arrest to be a test case so that Montgomery's black citizens could challenge the city's segregationist laws. He and the other leaders of the movement had actually been waiting for a case like this, for an act of injustice that would galvanize the black community and drive them into action. After Rosa Parks was arrested, Edie Nixon organized a meeting of local ministers at a home church of a young minister, Martin Luther King Jr. A little later on, King was elected to lead the boycott, mainly because he was new in town and unknown, and the city fathers of Montgomery hadn't had a chance to intimidate him. Edie Nixon actually had to push Reverend King to get him to take the job, but he did it, finally, and the world started to change. The night of Rosa Parks' arrest, Joanne Robinson, the head of Women's Political Council, printed and circulated a flyer throughout Montgomery's Black community. Another woman has been arrested and thrown in jail because she refused to get up out of her seat on the bus for a white person to sit down. This has to be stopped. The next time it may be you or your daughter or your mother. This woman's case will come up on Monday. We are therefore asking every black person to stay off the buses Monday in protest of the arrest and trial. Don't ride the buses to work, to town, to school, or anywhere on Monday. You can afford to stay out of school for one day if you have no other way to go except by bus. You can also afford to stay out of town for one day. If you work, take a cab or walk, but please, children and grown-ups, don't ride the bus at all on Monday. That was December 2nd. On December 3rd, almost no black people rode the buses in Montgomery, Alabama. Instead, boycotters just stayed home or organized carpools. Some white housewives even drove their black domestic servants to work, whether they were sympathetic to the cause or just wanted to not have their servants miss a day at work. Dr. King said it best himself 
a miracle has taken place. The city didn't like that. They pressured local insurance companies to stop insuring cars used in carpools. So the boycott leaders arranged policies with Lloyds of London. Black taxi drivers helped too. They charged their black fares only 10 cents for a ride, the same price as a bus ride. And when the city officials heard about that, they passed a law saying it was illegal to charge a driver less than 45 cents. That didn't stop it. It just got bigger. People started riding bicycles. They started walking. They even rode mules and horse-drawn buggies. And across the country, black churches raised money to support the boycott, even collected shoes to replace the worn-out footwear of the Montgomery's black citizens. The white racist power structure, part of a group called the White Citizens Council, fought back. Martin Luther King Jr.'s and Ralph Abernathy's houses were firebombed. So were four black Baptist churches. Boycotters were attacked and beaten all over town. Finally, the city of Montgomery hauled out a law passed way back in 1921 and started arresting protesters for hindering a bus. And one of those arrested was King. He ended up spending two weeks in prison and becoming a national celebrity. Much later, Dr. King said, I was proud of my crime. It was a crime of joining my people in a nonviolent protest against injustice. The Montgomery bus boycott was an 11th month mass protest that ended with the US Supreme Court ruling that public bus segregation is unconstitutional. Dr. King saw it was much more than about that. It wasn't just about black, not, it wasn't just about a black woman in Montgomery getting pushed around. It wasn't just about one law in one city. It was about the rights of all black people. It was time to stand up. Please join in reading the words on the screen. Dr. King said, In, in all of our actions, we must stick together. together. Unity, Unity is the great need of the hour. And if we are united, we can get many of the things that we not only desire, but which we justly deserve. By the way, Rosa Parks came out okay. She was awarded the Congressional Gold Medal, and there's a statue of her in the Nat National Statuary Hall. When she died, she lay in honor in the Capitol Rotunda in Washington, D.C., only the third private citizen to lie in honor in the Rotunda, Rosa Parks. Please join us, standing in body or in spirit, and singing to him, We Shall Not Be Moved. The choir will sing the first verse, and then the congregation will join in on the refrain. Black and white together, we shall not be moved. Black and white together, we shall not be moved. 
we shall not be moved just like a tree that's planted by the river. We shall not be moved. We shall not be, we shall not be moved. We shall not be, we shall not be moved just like a tree that's planted by the river. We shall not be moved. Young and old together, we shall not be moved. Young and old together, we shall not be moved. Just like a tree that's planted by the river, we shall not be moved. We shall not be. We shall not be moved. We shall not be. We shall not be moved. Just like a tree By 1963, the civil rights movement had grown into a national movement. There had been sit-ins at lunch counters, voter registration drives, freedom rides on interstate buses, and many school districts had accepted school desegregation. But there was the fierce resistance in a number of states, including Alabama. Governor George Wallace and the officials in a number of locales vowed to resist even in the face of court decisions and growing federal pressure. Wallace had just become governor of Alabama. His inaugural speech contained these words, in the name of the greatest people that have ever trod this earth, I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny. And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Wallace would be proven wrong but it took several years of determined effort to overcome Alabama white supremacist power structure. Birmingham, Alabama, 1963. Martin Luther King Jr.'s and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, that's the SCLC, nonviolent approach to social change was truly taking hold. And its leadership agreed. It was time to attack it head on and to do it in the center of the segregational resistance. Like future, John, like future Congressman John Lewis said, Our goal in Birmingham was larger than ending segregation in one southern city. It was our hope that our efforts in Birmingham would dramatize the fight and determination of African-American citizens in all the southern states, and that we would force the Kennedy administration to draft and push through Congress a comprehensive civil rights act outlawing segregation and racial discrimination in public accommodations, employment, and education. Bull Connor, Birmingham's Commissioner of Public Safety, was a determined segregationist. So when the SCLC finally launched its anti-segregation campaign in early April, Bull Connor put up a wall of resistance. It started with mass meeting and direct action. King talked endlessly about the philosophy of nonviolence and its methods and gathered volunteers for lunch counter sit-ins, marches on city halls, 
a boycott of downtown merchants. The number of volunteers increased every day. Now there were kneel-ins at churches, sit-ins at the library, and a march on the county building to mark the opening of a voter registration drive. On April 10th, the city government got a court injunction ordering an end to all protests. But Martin Luther King Jr. and the SCLC disobeyed the court order. King declared, We cannot in all conscience obey <clears throat> such an injunction, which is an unjust, undemocratic, and unconstitutional misuse of the legal process. King himself knew he would be arrested if he kept on going. And he worried about that. They were running out of money and Dr. King was good at fundraising. He wondered if he could do more on the outside than on the inside. But finally he decided he had to go to jail in Birmingham. Friends, he said. I have to make a faith act. I don't know what will happen or what the outcome will be. I don't know where the money will come from. But on April the 12th, he got himself arrested for violating the court order and was slammed into solitary confinement. He wasn't even allowed to call his wife Coretta, who was home recovering from giving birth. Attorney General Bobby Kennedy and President John F. Kennedy had to put pressure on the judges personally, just so Dr. King could call home. Finally, after a huge movement all across the country just to raise the money, King was released on April 19, 1963. Sorry. During his time in jail, Dr. King came to recognize how big the movement was becoming. It wasn't just about the Deep South anymore, even though that's where the oppression of Black people was the worst and had lasted the longest. No, this was about Black people all across the country. In his famous letter to, from Birmingham jail, he wrote the words you see on the screen. Will, will you please join me in saying them together? Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow, provincial, outside agitator idea. Anyone who lives inside the United States can never be considered an outsider anywhere within its bounds. But change didn't happen just because he was released from jail. There had to be a way to keep the pressure up to make the civil rights movement a truly national event. And that's when the children came. The grown-ups in the movement wanted to keep up the pressure. They really wanted things to change. So they asked high school students to get involved in the demonstrations. They had no idea what a lion they were releasing. On May 2nd, barely two weeks after King's release, more than a thousand black children came together to protest in Birmingham, Alabama. 900 of them were arrested. The next day, nearly 2,500 more took their place. And Bull Connor, still in control, couldn't stand it. He kept his people under control until then, much as he hated. But now, 
He ordered firefighters to turn their hoses on the protesters. He told police officers to let their dogs loose and chase those children down. In pictures that were broadcast and printed all over the country, nonviolence protesters were seen being beaten by angry police officers. Children were driven to the ground. John Lewis said, we didn't comprehend at first what was happening. We were witnessing police violence and brutality, Birmingham style. Unfortunately for Bull Connor, so was the rest of the world. Agreements stated started to be made. Pledges for the desegregation of public accommodations, for more fair hiring practices, for better communication between black and white leaders. But the white racists couldn't stand that. The home of Dr. King's brother was bombed. Another bomb was planted near the motel where King was staying. A bomb went off on Sunday at 9.45 a.m. at the 16th Street Baptist Church and killed four little girls. It killed four little girls at Sunday school. It was a national issue now. It was time for everyone, young and old, rich and poor, to join in solidarity together. On August 28, 1963, more than 200,000 demonstrators showed up in Washington, D.C. and marched to the Lincoln Memorial. That's where Martin Luther King Jr. gave the speech that everyone remembers, the speech about his dream that became everyone's dream. As we return to our seats, Michael is going to continue offering his gift of music as you are invited to contribute from your financial bounty to the work of this congregation in the world. The instructions for giving electronically will appear on the screen. And if you'd like to put cash or checks in the basket at the back of the sanctuary, you may do that as you depart this morning. Thank you. 
Martin Luther King Jr. did not ask to be the leader of the civil rights movement. The Montgomery NAACP was looking for a spokesperson and Martin Luther King Jr. was asked to speak on their behalf. The bus boycott made national news and the young minister became a national figure. He had read about Gandhi in college and had training in nonviolent protest, nonviolent resistance, but led a mass movement based on those principles. That was a new thing. Over the course of the 11 years after Montgomery, Martin Luther King became a world figure. He was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. He was also expanding his vision, how to achieve real equality, real freedom for African-Americans. He began to see that this would go beyond civil rights, that is, equal legal rights. He began to see that the problem was unequal dis distribution of wealth, that white, Asian, Latino, Native American, and African Americans were all suffering together in a system that perpetuated inequality and poverty. In the last days of his life, he became critical of the corporate power structure and of U.S. foreign policy. He began to see the struggles in African and Latin America and in Vietnam against colonism as a part, sorry, colonialism, as a part of the same struggle that he was engaged in. He made plans to join the civil rights movement with the labor movement in what he described as a poor people's movement. He died in Memphis, Tennessee. He was there to support the sanitation workers strike, a strike of white workers and African-American workers who had united in the Deep South for their rights to organization and decent wages. The concrete results of the movement changed the world. The Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. They led directly to the enfranchisement of African Americans and directly to the inauguration day the country celebrated 14 years ago next week when our country's first African American president took office. But in the final days of his life, Dr. King saw his mission widen even more. As the war in Vietnam grew deeper and wider, as thousands and thousands of black people and white people and Asian people on both sides of the war continued to die, he saw that the quest for civil rights was a quest for human rights, that it was about the oppression of all people of every race all around the world. Today, we honor Martin Luther King Jr. We give thanks for the movement that changed the world for the better and continues to change it today. We remind ourselves that whatever color we are, wherever we come from, whoever we are, this is our movement too. We are all part of the plan. We are all citizens of the world. At the beginning of our service today, I wish you discomfort, unrest, holy agitation, how will we move forward today into the continuing struggle to recognize the racism and culture of white supremacy in which all of our institutions and all Americans are steeped? Our closing hymn this morning, also known as the Black National Anthem, in the words of Aisha Ansano is a very powerful song, but it's often sung out of context and at times it's sung without a lot of intentionality. These are Aisha's words. It's easy to open the hymnal and sing along without necessarily processing what the words we're singing really mean. Sing a song full of the faith the dark past has taught us. 
Bitter the chastening rod felt in the days when hope unborn had died. We've come over a way that with tears has been watered, and we come treading our path through the blood of the slaughtered. This song deserves to be sung with attention. It's a song that starkly names the horrors and violence of racism in this country, and it is a song that should make us uncomfortable with the history that it calls upon. The struggle for racial justice continues and has not come quite so far as it should have by now. So when we sing this song, will you join me in singing with intentionality? Singing these words, discomfort in the pain and horror that these words refer back to, and discomfort with the fact that they not only refer to a distant history, but also to what might be happening now. Will you commit to sitting with your own discomfort? And then will you tap into discomfort to do something? Will you stand with me now and let's lift our voices and sing until earth and heaven ring with the harmonies of liberty.
Kimberly Quinn Johnson writes, Hush, somebody's calling your name. Can you hear it? Calling you to a past not quite forgotten, calling us to a future not fully imagined. Hush, hush, somebody's calling our name. What shall we do? Amen.
exist There is a hunger in the center of the chest there is a passage through the darkness and the mist oh, And though the body sleeps, the heart will never rest Oh, let us turn our thoughts to me To Martin Luther King And recognize that there are ties between us All men and women Ties of hope and love of sister and Don't you know we're talking about a revolution sounds Don't you know we're talking about a revolution sounds like a whisper While they're standing in the welfare lines Crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation Wasting time in the unemployment lines Sitting around Waiting for a promotion Don't you know Talking about a revolution Sounds Yes, Who are people gonna rise up And get their share Who are people gonna rise up And take what's there Don't you know you better run, run, run Talking about a revolution, oh no. Talking about a revolution. 